Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And the word of the Lord reads this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. This is the word of the Lord. Timothy Bower once wrote of G.K. Chesterton who said, it's surprising that all that people have rejected the doctrine of original sin because it's the only doctrine that can be empirically verified. I want to welcome you back to our series on the book of Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. Uh, We've taken a short break as we had a couple of guests who come to preach to us and then we had vacation Bible school. But here we are back in the series of Romans and the reason why we're in this series is is really twofold. Number one, the, the, the letter of the Romans is the most theologic, theologically complete treatment of the gospel of, of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ in the Bible, meaning Romans is the most complete explanation of what the gospel is, what the gospel accomplishes, and how we avail ourselves of the gospel and how we are to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact is that we know, right, most of us, we know that, that we, know, we know what we know about the gospel because of Paul's letter, right? Which, by the way, is why he wrote it. He wrote the letter to introduce himself to the Roman Christians because he had hoped to set up a base of operation in Rome so that he can go further west into Europe. And he also wrote the letter to ease the tensions between the Jews and the, the Gentiles. But he also wrote the letter to explain the gospel to those brothers and sisters in Rome. The church in Rome was started by Jews who were converted at Pentecost when they were on their pilgrimage in Jerusalem. And hearing Peter preach, they believed and then went home and started a church in the city of Rome, but they never really had an apostle to come visit them and help them with their theology. And so Paul writes this letter to explain to them what the gospel is so that all of them would be on the same page. And that is why this is the most complete explanation of the gospel in the Bible. And we praise the Lord for it. That's number one. Number two, the reason why we're in this series is what the world needs now more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world does not need more church pragmatism. The world does not need more easy believism. The world does not need church growth strategies that appeal to the consumerist mentality of Americans. 
The world needs churches that know the gospel, understand the gospel, and have memorized the gospel, and are willing to go out into the world and share the gospel. You see, so many people think that evangelism is supposed to take place in here, in this room. That somehow, someway, people will just magically wander in off the street, curious about what we do in here. Or maybe we will draw them in here by being entertaining or, or that we will do some fancy schmancy marketing, you know, online or, or however, and they'll become interested and come here. Or we will bribe them by giving them material things or we will lure them in there with the promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. Right. Or somehow, someway, we'd, you know, once they're here, then I would preach this uber-compelling sermon you know, and just at the right time, the music will play and then people will get all emotional and somehow they will then come and make a decision for Christ. That is actually not how evangelism is supposed to work. Now, please understand, I will always preach the gospel every Sunday morning and I will always call sinners to repent and believe. So if you bring your friend and invite, him, invite them here hoping that they'll hear the gospel, well, you can bet on it that they will hear it. But let's get really clear. The purpose of the church coming together on the Lord's Day is to gather together in the unity of the body for corporate worship of God. Our main point for being here this morning and every Sunday morning is Him, to worship Him. And in the process of worship, we are to read and we are to preach the word of God. That's how, one of the means that God has prescribed for us to worship him. And that reading and preaching of the word glorifies him and it also edifies and equips all of us. And what are we being equipped for? Well, Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 4. He said that Christ gave to the church leaders and pastors to equip the saints, the believers in the church, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We are to gather together to glorify God and to equip you for the work of ministry. We're to equip you to go out into the world and to minister to all of those people that you come in contact with. We're to equip you to be able to love your neighbor as yourself. We're to equip you to be able to meet the needs of those that you come in contact with. We're to equip you most importantly, to share the message of the gospel with all of your family members and all your friends and all the people that you come in contact with. Because right now, that's what the world needs more than anything else. It's the hope that only Christ can give. I mean, look at the world right now. Today is a really good example. People are in the streets protesting, even violently. There are people that are actively, openly calling for the death of the Supreme Court justices. In fact, there was one person who made an attempt on one of them. Why? Why is that? Well, the reason is because the Supreme Court ruled that the states now can decide whether or not to allow or restrict or ban abortions. And understand, the Supreme Court did not outlaw abortions, contrary to what people will tell you. It just ruled that killing a child in the womb is not a constitutional right protected by the federal government and that states now have the right to regulate that or to allow it or to ban it outright. And people are protesting all over America right now. In fact, somebody vandalized the Family Life Pregnancy Center in Tehachapi that we actively support. 
the, 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 the employees and the volu volunteers there obviously are greatly concerned. This is an, an escalation they'd never seen before. And many of these protests are filled with disgusting imagery. Vandalism, looting, violence, and even the ongoing threat of violence. In fact, there are messages circulating throughout social media calling for people in cities to invade rural communities in order to do violence because the reasoning is, is that's where the conservative Christians live, is in rural communities. The Supreme Court's decision is causing a growing number of people to call for violence against their own countrymen. This is a turning point, brothers and sisters, in our nation's history. And when you listen to the reasoning of why people are so upset about this and why they are so extreme in their views, what you realize that this simply is not going to be a legal issue. It is a heart issue. It is a gospel issue. The reason why people are willing to resort to violence to secure their ability to murder children in the womb is because they need to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Only the gospel can do that. Hear me, brothers and sisters. Whatever political victory we might experience that aligns up with our political proclivities, only the gospel can heal the divide that is in our country right now. Only the gospel can help us to see the truth of the sanctity of all human life. Only the gospel can help us to see how selfish and how self-deceived we are as individuals and as a nation. And only the gospel will help us to love other people, including the unborn and including our enemies as ourselves. Only the gospel and the forgiveness of Christ can heal the wounds of millions of men and women who have sacrificed their children at the altar of reproductive freedom. Only Jesus can bring the forgiveness and the healing that those people need. What this world needs more than anything else is the gospel of grace. And all of us, brothers and sisters, are the messengers of that gospel. If you're in Christ, you're a messenger of that gospel. Not just the pastor, but all of us. And that is why we're in this series. That is why we're talking about the gospel so in-depth. It is our aim to help you to know and to understand the gospel so well that it saturates your life so much that when you finally meet somebody where they are, you have the ability to speak the truth to them in love and in grace to help them to see the love of Christ. And so in light of that, then turn with me to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. The first thing that we need to notice is that Paul starts this with another conjunction. The conjunction, therefore. If you notice, as we've talked, he uses a lot of conjunctions, right? He uses his word here because he's connecting his thoughts together. And what this means for us is that if we're going to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand what Paul has been saying all along because it's all connected. It's all related. Paul's flow of thought is moving from one point to the next because he's building his, his argument. And, and what we need to do is take a moment and remind ourselves of what Paul has said so far in the way of context. 
And what we know is that Paul has written this letter to explain the gospel to the church in Rome, and he took the first four chapters to explain what the gospel is. As you remember, he said it's the bad news that all mankind is enslaved in sin and are sinners by nature under the wrath of God. And then it's the good news of what Christ has done for us in spite of us and that what we can do, that we can be saved from the wrath of God and we avail ourselves of that by faith in Christ and faith in the gospel. In fact, the turning point of, of Paul's explanation of the gospel in Romans chapter 3, verse 22 says this, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Paul says that all have sinned and deserve justice, but God, in His grace, sent Christ to bring redemption by His life and sacrifice, and we receive that simply by faith in Him. Now, after explaining what the gospel is, Paul begins to unpack for us in chapter 5 the blessings that the gospel offers those who are in Christ. What are the blessings of the gospel? Well, they are, first of all, peace with God. Paul says that those who were justified by faith have, present tense, peace, a shalom with God, where, where we were once enemies of God. We are now at peace with Him, completely in harmony with Him. Another blessing of the gospel is, is we have direct access to God Himself, where we were once cut off from God, as symbolized by the temple itself. The veil has now been torn, and nothing then separates us from God, which means we have access to Him anytime, anywhere. There's never a time that you're not in the presence of God. There's never a time that you don't have the ability to turn heavenward and speak to God and Him hear you. And more than that, we also have access to His whole sphere of grace. And we also have an unshakable hope in the inheritance of heaven that cannot ever be taken from us, ever. And we have the Holy Spirit given to us by God, who pours out the love of God in our hearts. And then we have God's love historically demonstrated. Something we can look back on over and over again by the fact that Christ died for us. And then we have, because of that, reconciliation with God. We are reconciled back in a relationship with God as family. We're not just enemies who now have a truce. We have been reconciled to God where we can call him Abba, Father. We are his beloved children. We have been given the robe and the ring and the shoes on our feet. We have been invited to his table. And so Paul explains then what the gospel is and the blessings that the gospel gives to those who believe. And he begins to tell us how the gospel actually works. How it is that we became sinners and how it is we become redeemed. And notice Paul begins a verse in, in, chapter, in, in verse 12. He begins a statement that he really doesn't finish here. It actually doesn't finish it until verse 18. In fact, just, just look at this text and look how, how tricky it is to follow what he's saying here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through a man, one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned 
from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Notice really how hard this, this particular text is to follow. If you don't believe me, try diagramming it. Exactly. The reason why it's hard to follow is because Paul begins to make a, st a statement, but as he does so, he actually begins to digress and he bunny trails onto another subject. That's actually what's happening here. He starts talking about one thing and then he's reminded of something else and he bunny trails for a moment. That's why this text seems a bit disconnected. Right? But the truth is we're, we're kind of used to that. I think we all know people who talk like that. They'll start telling you something, right? And then suddenly the details of the story remind them of something else. They don't want to forget to tell you about it. So they rabbit trail in that direction. And hopefully, eventually, you know, they'll come back around to the point. For example, I went to Walmart the other day. By the way, did you know that Walmart has those Captain Crunch Rice Krispie treats. And my kids, they love Rice Krispie treats, especially those flavors, and especially Carson, because he actually uses them as a way to fuel himself for his workouts. It's a pre-workout snack for him, because as you know, Carson, you know, is working really hard for a chance to play football. In fact, we have another camp coming up in July, and, and we're also then going to visit another college while we're there. But, but anyway, as I was saying, I went down to Walmart the other day and the place was so busy, I just turned around and left. Right? Right? We've all experienced that. We, we know people who, who talk that. That's exactly what's happening here. Paul starts to make a statement about something, but the details of that statement cause him to veer off for just a moment to, to explore those details a little bit deeper. Again, look at what Paul says here. Right? What we do is we expect him to kind of finish this statement and, and, we, and it probably would sound like this if we, were, you know, if we were to write it, right? Paul would say, just as sin came into the world through one man, and justification and eternal life came into the world through another man, Jesus Christ. That's kind of how we would expect him to kind of connect the dots, how he would, he would actually finish his statement, which, by the way, is exactly or essentially what he says in verse 18. In verse 18, Paul comes back to this point. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to, the, to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He kind of comes back and finishes his thought. Just as sin came into the world through one man, justification and life came through another man. That's where we would expect for him to go. But in verse 12, Paul begins this thought. And he just doesn't finish it for six verses. He gets sidetracked momentarily. Now, why? Why is it, do you think, that Paul got sidetracked here? Well, the first reason is because he's being led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has moved him to write what he wrote. As we affirm, the Holy Spirit moves men along to record the Scriptures as God would have them to record it. But the second reason is because Paul, right, the point that Paul is about to make, you know, about sin and death coming through one man and life coming through another, moves him to explain the basis of mankind's condemnation before God and the basis then of his justification. 
Remember, Paul is explaining the gospel, the bad news of all of mankind and being guilty in sin, and the good news that man can be made righteous through faith in Christ. And the point that Paul is about to make is we were all made sinners condemned because of the work of one man, Adam. And we have become righteous and we were forgiven because of the work of another man, Jesus Christ. That is the theological point that he's about to make. In Adam we die, in Christ we have life. And it's because of that, Paul rabbit trails to explain how all of that works. Because think about it, how is it that Adam's sin is imputed to us and that we die as a result? How is it that Christ's righteousness can be credited to us as if it's our own and for us to have life? I mean, we know that we die in Adam and we are alive in Christ We know that we are sinners because of Adam and we are justified because of Christ. How does that actually work? How is sin and death credited to us? Well, in this section, Paul begins to unpack that and explain that. In this section, Paul begins to explain for us the theological concept of what is known as federal headship. And I know how much you guys love theological language. I actually debated about talking about this without actually using words like that, but I felt I'd take a lot more time trying to explain around it than just say the words, right? And I know, like, it can be a little bit challenging, but this is an important idea that Paul impacts for us. It's an idea that we need to kind of wrap our heads around because it is through this theological idea of federal headship that we actually really get a better understanding of sin, how sin affects us, and how it's imputed or credited to us. And it helps us to understand how how we are all sinners. How is it that, that sin is universal to every human being? And more importantly, this doctrine helps us to understand how it is that the righteousness of Christ and his life can be given or imputed to us. Because what we know is we didn't earn it, right? That's what we believe as Christians, that we didn't deserve it. We don't earn it. It must be given to us. So what is the basis of that being given to us? Paul in this text is trying to explain how sin affects us and how the finished work of Christ redeems us. That's what we're going to see in this text, the doctrine of federal headship, which then causes us to ask, what is federal headship? Well, the the, the word federal is something we should all be familiar with. Some of us don't like that word so much, right? Some of us are okay with it because we think of what? The federal government, But the word federal simply means or simply has to do with an agreement It simply has to do with a compact or a covenant. Our federal government represents us in the world in different issues because there's an agreement, a covenant, a contract among all the individual states to submit themselves to the federal government's leading that way. And so when our federal government does something like going to war, we can rightly say all of the states in the United States are at war. And so the word word federal is really about an agreement or a covenant, which is another way or another word that we should be familiar with. Because God historically has dealt with men through his covenants. In fact, the word testament can be rendered covenant. Your Bible is made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or the Old Covenant 
or new covenant. God deals with mankind through His covenants. You have, a, you have the covenant of Abraham we see in the Scriptures, we have the covenant of Moses, and we have the covenant of David, and so on. Covenants are the arrangement by which God deals with mankind, and these are the federal or covenantal ways that God deals with His people. And so in light of that, federal headship is this idea that there's a person in the covenant that represents everyone else. They are the head of the group. A person who is a federal head is a representative of someone else. And we have kind of some understanding of that. We all kind of understand the idea of a power of attorney, right? That you then contractually are invested with certain powers. If you have a power of attorney, you contractually have the authority to act on the behalf of someone else. So when you do something, when you take action in their name, it's as if they did it themselves. You were in essence their federal head. You represent them in some kind of agreement or contract or covenant. That's the underlying idea what Paul is, being, is, is trying to explain here. The reason why Adam's actions affect us is because he is our representative. He is our federal head in the covenant of works. The covenant where God told Adam that he could have dominion over all the world and everything would be good and perfect if he just simply obeyed. In fact, our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, puts it this way. God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it but threatened death if they broke it. That's the covenant of works. God says, if you do this, this will happen. And if you do that, that will happen. That is a covenant. And Adam, then, is the one who represents us in that covenant. And if he would have not failed, then all of the world would have lived perfectly in paradise. In, in, in chapter 3 of the same chapter of the, of the confession, we were told, by God's appointment, they, Adam and Eve, were the root and the representative of the whole human race. Adam is our federal representative. He is our representative in the covenant of works. He is our federal head. And so in light of that, Paul in this section explains how Adam's sin affects us. How his sin affects us as he is our representative. But then Paul points out, just as Adam's sin affects us, Christ's life and finished work on the cross affects us because Jesus is the new representative of the new covenant. The covenant of grace. That he is the new federal head for us. You see, in this section, Paul is connecting the dots for how it is that Adam represents all of mankind and ultimately how Jesus represents those who are justified by faith in Christ. That is the bunny trail that we see here. And I know that this is a big theological idea. And I know that many of you will probably not remember the terms once you walk out of here. Probably saying, if I ever have to hear federal headship again, I'll probably choke, right? 
And that's okay. You don't need to know the theological terms. But once you begin to understand the idea of covenants and how Adam and Christ represent us in those covenants, the gospel will make a whole lot more sense to you. So Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now we have a better understanding of what Paul is saying here. Paul, through Paul, though he, he expresses one man, the word one man, we know from the context that he's referring to Adam. What he's saying is Adam is a representative. Through him, sin came into the world. And the thing that we need to reflect on is Paul's going to build his entire theology of the gospel on this truth, that sin came into the world through Adam, that sin didn't already exist in the world before Adam. In fact, the word that Paul uses here in, in the Greek for word, world is, is cosmon, which means cosmos or the universe or all of creation. And what Paul is getting at is that sin entered into creation through Adam. It wasn't there before, which tells us two very important things. The universe was perfect at one time and sin didn't exist in the universe. Right? And number two, Paul has a literal historical view of Adam in the fall. This is important because there are a lot of people who think that Adam either was not the first human being they believe he's a real person, but he wasn't the first human being. He's the first perfect human being. Or some other people believe that, that Genesis is just simply spiritual mythology, that there was really no Adam. He didn't actually exist. That he was a made-up character in, a, in, a, in an epic tale to help us to kind of have a better understanding of ourselves, but it wasn't reality. That he wasn't real, that it didn't happen. But the problem is, Paul, as you can see, is quite clear. He believes that Adam is a real person, and the events of the fall are actually historical facts. And by the way, he explains the gospel. As he explains the gospel, his entire theology depends on a little under, literal understanding of the, creative, uh, the creation narrative. Now, there are people that I know and respect, and some people that I love who see it differently. I've actually heard, you know, all of the arguments for their position. I just find them completely unconvincing, especially with respect to what the scriptures say. Because through all of Paul's letters, when he makes reference to Adam, he does so not from a mythological perspective, but from a literal historical perspective. Not to mention, I hold to the truth that all scripture is breathed out by God and his word is inspired and inerrant and infallible. And so I believe that Paul's words are the word of God. And that means Paul's view of Adam is then God's view of Adam. <clears throat> and if God says that Adam was a real person in time and space, then I'm going to go with him. Adam was a real person, right? That he was the real first person. And that the fall with them was a real event in history, which then means when God created the universe and everything in it, he did so, and it was very good, as Genesis tells us, that it was perfect. But when Adam fell, sin entered into creation, and that changed everything. Right? Now with that, what we need to understand is this Genesis explanation, what Paul's explaining, 
is not an explanation of the origin of sin or evil. There are a lot of people who want to go to the scriptures, philosophers and theologians who want to twist their heads around trying to figure out what was the moment that sin and evil actually came into being. The thing is, is the Bible doesn't actually tell us that. The Bible in Genesis and Paul's letter doesn't spell out exactly when evil actually began to exist. It just tells us that sin and evil entered into the world. And it reminds us of the fact that there are some questions that, that mankind will wrestle with from now on until Christ returns or calls us home. The truth is there are going to be things about God and, and how He created the universe and why He allows certain things to happen. And, and, and we're not going to understand those things in this life. All we can do is just trust Him because we're not God and we don't have His perspective. This is why people get so twisted up of the problem of evil. They struggle with the idea that God can allow what He allows because God is in control and knows things that we don't know. But what we can be confident in is the fact that God does reveal to us what we need to know in order for us to be redeemed by Him. And what His Word makes clear is that mankind, under the headship of Adam, was created in a place that was perfect. And it was placed under the covenant of works and the promise was that obedience leads to life and that disobedience leads to death. Again, he, as the confession expresses, God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Adam, as our representative under the covenant of works, had all he needed for life and godliness, but he fell and transgressed God's command and sin entered the world, infecting all of creation. And as one theologian puts it, Adam was the door through which sin entered into the universe. And the consequences of, of that have been devastating. As Paul continues and says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, which itself bears a little bit of reflection there was a time that sin and death were not part of the created order. That is something that we don't even have the ability to relate to. But it's true. Everything was perfect. Things didn't die. Things didn't wear out. There was no decay. But Adam, for himself and on our behalf, transgressed God's command and sin came into the world. <clears throat> and through that sin came sin's natural consequence, which is death which is exactly what God warned in Genesis chapter 2. In verse 16 of Genesis chapter 2, it reads, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam was the door for sin to come in the world, and sin was the door for death because death is the inevitable consequence of sin, which is what we understand from Romans chapter 6. In verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. The, the, what is rightly earned by those who sin is death. In fact, if you remember Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 28, Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haunty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And here's the key. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This echoes the truth that's found in the Old Testament. Proverbs verse, chapter 11, verse 19 says, Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. There is no question that the consequence, the natural, inevitable consequence of sin is death. And we instinctively know this, I think. I think we realize that sin leads to death. I mean, we know that the sin of adultery in a marriage can kill the marriage. That the sin of betrayal can kill friendships. That the sin of dishonesty can kill your job and your career. That the sin of selfishness can lead, has led millions of people to kill their own unborn children. Sin always leads to death in some fashion, and especially it leads to spiritual and physical death. And because of this, there's a couple things we ought to come to terms with. Number one, death is not original to the created order because death didn't come into the world until sin did, which then leads back to the issue of people not seeing Adam as the literal first man. <clears throat> there are some Christians who hold to the theory of evolution and they believe that it's compatible with faith in Christ. There are some people who believe in what's called theistic evolution, meaning that they believe that God used evolution as a mechanism to bring about creation. The problem is there's a glaring issue with this. You see, the idea of evolution depends upon creatures living, dying, and then adapting and changing over time. Right? It's called what? Survival of the fittest which means there would be literally billions and trillions of creatures that would have died long before mankind even appeared. Which means that death in the cosmos predates the fall. It's a problem. Right? And that would mean that, that, that death really was not connected to sin, as Paul says it is, unless sin entered into the world in some, by some other means. I mean, I find this position to be in contradiction to the plain reading of Genesis and the further a further contradiction to Paul's understanding of history on which he builds his entire theology. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian and still believe in evolution. What I'm saying is if you believe in evolution, right, your understanding of the gospel, I believe, is on shaky ground because you lose the emphasis of how we understand sin and how that sin's applied to us. That's why I personally hold to a literal six-day view of creation. For me, it is the best conclusion based on the scriptures and what the scriptures actually teach. And it certainly helps us to better understand the gospel and our need for Christ. And so sin, as Paul says, came through Adam and death through sin. And this death has a universal effect on all of creation and especially on all of mankind. Notice Paul writes, Just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul makes it clear that the effects of both sin and death have become universal. He says that all die because all sin. And yes, 
It is true that all people have sinned individually and willfully, and we do so universally. But understand, this is not the point that Paul is making here. Paul believes certainly in individual sin and that we should be accountable for our own sin, but he has a bigger point in view here. The thing that he has in view is how Adam's sin affected us. You see, Paul is saying death came through Adam and spread to all men because all men are in Adam. He is our forefather and he is our federal representative under the covenant of works. And he failed right, for himself and he failed for all of us as well. And so what Paul is saying is all men sinned not because of their own sin in time and space, but they sinned in Adam when Adam sinned. All men sinned when Adam sinned because all men were in Adam physically and covenantally. Now, as Americans who have grown up in the Western world and in a culture of individualism, we kind of struggle to think in these terms of headship because we're very individualistic in our nature. But the truth is, I think there are ways that we can relate to this idea. As we talked about the power of attorney, right? We kind of understand how that works, that you represent someone else. Or how about unions? There is a slogan that most unions hold to that says this, an injury to one is an injury to all, right? That one person represents the whole of the entire group. Or how about this? This is a better analogy. How about sports? Many of our, of our lives and emotions are invested in our identity as a, of a certain sports team. You don't believe me? Then ask a diehard fan that who won the last game. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, we did. We? Who's we? I mean, you didn't play in the game. Heck, they don't even know who you are. What do you mean, we? But we feel, right, a connection to them. We feel a connection to them and what they do on the field, at least <clears throat> for a brief moment in time in our lives. It affects us. If you don't believe me, then just show up here on Friday nights during football season. And you will find out that there are people who are very much affected by what happens on the field through those who are playing. There is a sense of headship. Those boys on the field represent us. That's why we say us and we. So we kind of understand this, right? But the Bible actually has a deeper understanding of this headship. Not only does the Bible hold Adam as a representative of mankind, but the Bible has other examples of, of group identity as well. Like the story of Achan. In the book of Joshua, we find that the nation of Israel had crossed over Jordan, of the river Jordan, and they begin the conquest of the land. And God had told them, when they got to the city of Jericho, it's all mine. Burn it to the ground. Don't take anything for yourselves. It all belongs to me. The spoils belong to God. They weren't to touch any of that stuff. God was going to bless them and let them take whatever they wanted from the other conquests, but Jericho was all God's. But Achan couldn't help himself, and he found some silver, and he took it, and he hid it. 
But the thing that we need to understand was when you read that text, you find out that God doesn't just hold that sin against Achan. He holds that sin against the entire nation of Israel. In Joshua chapter 7, it reads this way. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Hear this. Israel has sinned. He didn't say Achan sinned. He said Israel has sinned. They have transgressed. They have transgressed my covenant that I've commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Notice that he uses the third person plural, they. Right? Not he. See, Achan in this moment represented the entire nation of Israel and they all suffered as a consequence because when they went to attack Ai, they were turned back. They had, they had lost the battle. Right? Or how about this? We are told that, that Melchizedek is greater than Levi because Levi, the son of Jacob, paid tithes to Melchizedek years before he was even born. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 9, it says, one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What we see in this text is that Abraham is Israel's federal head at the time. And that Abraham, what he did was then credited to his descendants because Abraham was the head of the family. He represented them all. And even us today, we will look back in history at people in the past and we will take credit for what they have done. Don't believe me? Think about the hymn that we love to sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And in verse 2, we will all tearfully sing these words, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it's finished. How was our sin upon his shoulders? We weren't born yet. How did our voice call out among the scoffers? We were not there 2,000 years ago. We were not there crucifying him. We didn't physically nail him to the cross. We didn't spit on him. We didn't mock him. But yet, in a sense, we did. We all kind of understand that. We identify ourselves with those people. They represent us because we're just like them. And so we do have an idea and understanding of this headship. And we can see that this headship of Adam over us and over as our representative is what Paul has in view here then. And that is why the confession says, by this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them. And through this, death came upon all and all became dead in sin and completely defiled in all capabilities in parts of soul and body. And then in uh, paragraph three, it says, by God's appointment, they are the root and representative of the whole human race. And because of this, the guilt of their sins is accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. 
their, par- their descendants are now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, and partakers of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. That is what Paul has, ex- has paused to explain to us, the issue that sin isn't simply about us making mistakes. That sin is not simply about us failing to obey some rules. The issue of sin is that it's universal and it affects us all. And the reason why is we are all, by our nature, sinners because of our connection to Adam. It's who we are. It's our nature. And the reason for that is Adam is a representative of the covenant works. The man in which we are all in, from which we all descend, was given a choice to earn righteousness by his obedience or to disobey and die. As we know that Adam chose by his own volition to transgress, failing to uphold the covenant of works. And the result has been sin has entered the world and death through sin and it spread to every human being because we were all in him. And that's the point that Paul's driving home. And that's the point that he will emphasize in, in verses 13 through 14. Verses 13 through 14 says this, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigns from Adam to Moses, even over those whose, sin, whose sinning is not like the transgression of Adam. Now I could spend the next couple of weeks unpacking just these, this little bit of text here, and the theological geek inside of me really, really wants to do just that. But I will spare you all that. You're welcome. <laughs> and I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version of what Paul's getting at here. What Paul is saying is all men die because all men sinned in Adam. Even before the law makes clear what sin is, people still died. Even before there was a clear standard of God's righteousness delineated by the law of Moses, people were still experiencing the consequence of sin Death. Why? Because they were all, like us, guilty in Adam. Because his sin had been imputed to them, and because he is there in our federal head, right? his sin is our sin. You see, what Paul is talking about here is original sin and how that applies to us. As J.C. Ryle once wrote, the sinfulness of man does not begin with out, but from within. It is not the result of bad training over the years. It's not picked up by bad companions and bad examples, as some weak Christians are are too fond of saying. No, it is the family disease which we all inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and with which we are born, created in the image of God, innocent and righteous at first. Our parents fell from original righteousness and became sinful and corrupt. And from that day to this, all men and women were born in the image of fallen Adam and Eve and inherit a heart and nature inclined to evil. And as he says, by one man, sin entered the world. You see, Paul is helping us to see the universal problem of sin isn't simply the fact that we all sin. It's the fact of who we are. As one rabbi puts it this way, we are all our own Adam. We are by nature sinners enslaved to sin. What Paul is doing is destroying the notion that people are basically born good, as so many people are fond of saying. 
Even so many Christians just want to hold on to this ideal that somehow, some way, that we are born good, but somehow we get broken in the process. That mankind is basically good in nature, but something, but somehow makes mistakes and becomes corrupt. What Paul is saying is we are all guilty because we're born sinners inheriting Adam's sin nature. Right? Even, even the kids, as Augustine says, the so-called innocence of children is more a matter of weakness of limb than purity of heart. You don't believe me? Take a three-year-old's temper tantrum and put him in a 30-year-old's body and you have a mass murderer. This is the truth that makes the bad news of the gospel so devastating, by the way. The truth that we are all sinners by nature and by children, by nature, children of wrath. That we, which means that there's not anything we can do to fix it on our own. You see, it's not about changing our behavior as so many people around us want to tell us. It's not about self-improvement. It's not about following a bunch of rules as the legalists would tell us. It isn't about trying really, 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 really hard to make God love us and to get right with God and be sincere in our faith. None of those things will avail us. Because we can't overcome who we are. We can't change our nature. And we cannot change the fact that we're in Adam. And what this truth does then is it drives us to the reality that we have no hope of our own and that we need then for God to supernaturally intervene and do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. This truth helps us to see the good news of the gospel because God has done exactly that. He does for us the things that we cannot do for ourselves. As Paul says at the end of this, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was like, not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, just as Adam was our federal head, there was one who would come into the world and succeed where he failed. And that is who? Jesus Christ. Right? In fact, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians calls Jesus what? The last Adam. This is the parallel that he's drawing here. He writes, thus, as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spirit that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. And the first man was born from the earth, a man of dust. The second, a man, the second man is from heaven. And as was the man of the dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man from heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's our hope. You see, Jesus entered into the world, the Son of God, right, and became our new representative, our new federal head. And as such, He came and fulfilled the perfect obedience that was required of the covenant of works. So many times we forget that that still has to be done. Somebody has to be righteous. The covenant of works must be fulfilled by someone. Someone must earn perfect righteous standing before God. Adam failed to do that, but Jesus in his humanity succeeded in that. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and he kept the perfect law that no one else has been able to keep. 
And he, as our federal head, under the covenant of works, earned a perfect righteous standing before God for us as our representative. And then he consummated the new covenant, the covenant of grace, by his own blood, where he takes upon himself all the sins of the world and he vicariously, as our substitute and representative, endured the punishment we rightly deserve and bore in his body the full weight of the wrath of God for us. He literally dies in our place. And then he was resurrected to new life, proving that the curse of sin and death that came into the world through Adam has been undone, as we sang this morning. And by faith in him and all that he has done for us, our sins are washed away because he paid for them through his own substitutionary atonement and his righteousness is credited or imputed to us as if it is our own so that we now can be completely reconciled back in a relationship with God. By faith, Jesus is our new federal head and so we are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. Now you understand the language of why Paul over and over again uses that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, because you're not in Adam, you're in Christ. You see, we were in Adam by birth, but we were in Christ by the new birth and by faith. That's the point that Paul is driving to. Just as sin came into the world through one man, our federal head, Adam, we could finish for Paul, forgiveness and life and righteousness came into the world through another man, our new federal head, Jesus Christ. That is the good news that the world needs to hear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are by nature children of wrath. All are dead in sins and trespasses. Just look around. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world and succeeded where Adam failed. And he came and he undid the curse of our nature, and the curse of our destiny. And the promise of God is this, if we will simply repent and believe the gospel, then Adam no longer represents us anymore. He is no longer our federal head. Christ is forevermore. Which means we are truly then children of the living God, reconciled with a sure hope and an inheritance that can never be taken from us. And through Christ's death, we too died to sin. And through his life, we will live forevermore. Now, John 3.16 makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? And all we have to do, all we have to do is repent and believe. It's not about us suddenly becoming model citizens it's not about us adopting a new set of rules that we got to follow. It's not about us suddenly becoming really, really, really excited all the time. I hate that notion that some Christians fall into in some groups where you can't even have a bad day without people questioning your salvation, right? Because some people are like, if you're really saved, you're always going to be happy all the time. No, you're not. Because you're still a human being. Christ's blood covers that too. All we do is repent and believe the gospel. And so, I would say, if you're not in Christ, 
If you've not experienced the joy of knowing that you belong to him, then repent and believe the gospel today. And I would be happy to tell you how to do that if you wanted to know. But if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, then today is the day to rejoice. Not only did God sovereignly by his own hand undo the great, one of the greatest atrocities in our generation, he undid Roe versus Wade. But we can rejoice in the fact that if you repent and believe the gospel, you are in Christ and your hope is secure, more secure than the sun coming up in the east and going down in the west. You belong to him in nothing, nothing, not politically, not economically, not physically, nothing can take that away from you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.